welcome to this, the fourth episode in the second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar and as ever this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland and as we do every week we are bringing this to you absolutely free of charge we have promised that we will never ever charge for these podcasts the whole point of this podcast is to support promote and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre and of course the best way for you to go and support Irish theatre is to go and buy yourself some tickets for a show very simple very straightforward, very direct way of helping us to keep the show on the road. So you can get tickets for one of the big houses, maybe tickets for one of the fringe venues, or if ticket prices are slightly outside your reach this week or this month, you can go and check out one of the crowdsourcing websites like a fundit.ie or an Indiegogo. There are always great theatre projects over there looking for your support. Donations often start from as low as a fiver, and there are always great rewards there for your donations, and one that I have already supported today I'm delighted to say is for Dennis Kelly's After the End which had been produced by the great Maria Guyver uh, a spectacular show that I had the privilege of seeing when it was at the Lear it's really really top notch stuff if you can support that at all that would be very well recommended by me and of course there are loads of ways you can support without putting your hands in your pockets go and tell people about this podcast the more we get the word out about the podcast the more we let the podcast get the word out about Irish theatre and it all goes round in a big happy circle you can tell people in person over a pint or over a cup of coffee or over a cup of tea or whatever it is that you have. You can share the link as a Facebook post or you can retweet the link over on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes which is of huge assistance to us. Uh, And of course go back and listen to all the other episodes both in this second series and indeed the full 52 episodes from series one. While you're there you might leave a review for us on iTunes or if you don't have time for that simply click to rate us on the five star rating system. It is a one click deal and as ever you can like Rise Productions on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland or you can follow us on Twitter we are at Rise Ireland and it's been another great week here at Rise Towers Uh, lots of eventful comings and goings we are still on the road with Christian O'Reilly's The Good Father we were at the Pavilion in Dunleary on Wednesday evening for another cracking show it has to be said it's really really rewarding to be out there all over the length and breadth of the country and still getting kind of an identical response from audiences everywhere we go where they absolutely adore people are leaping to their feet at the end of this massive standing ovation and really warming to the play by the great Christian O'Reilly and these two wonderful performances from uh, Rachel O'Byrne and Liam Heslin I am honoured to be part of this show I'm really proud of the work we've done with it and uh, it's it's just been going great it's really lovely we've got another week of the tour still to go we're going to play for a week in Tala in the Civic Theatre which I'm really looking forward to because we did a week there with the games people play a couple of years ago and it's really nice to be coming back and speaking of coming back it is time for this week's big announcement which is that The Good Father will be coming back. So much 
Has the success been and the response been that due to popular demand, we are going to remount the tour in spring of next year? Um, We are still locking down some of the final contracts and negotiating a few of the final deals with a few of the final venues. But it looks like on top of the 10 venues we played this time around, it looks like we'll have another 10 or 12 venues uh, for next spring. Kicking off, we can now announce, uh, at the Drihad Arts Centre in Drogheda on the 29th of March 2018 um, as part of their theatre club up there which I'm really looking forward to and we'll then play right the way through April and into the early May so there's uh, if you're looking for an idea for some tickets for Christmas presents or something and you know people around the Drogheda region please feel free to go on over to the Drihid website and pick up uh, your tickets there we're really looking forward to bringing the show back on the road and look it's a great testament to the work that everyone's put into getting the show to where it is that the response has been so strong that already we're booking uh, the remount for next year which I'm super super excited about as I said another 10 or 12 venues which feels really goddamn great and so that brings us to our guest this week who is none other than the brilliant Claire Monolly. and you know I spoke in the last couple of episodes about a bit of a trend where we're talking about people with a serious work ethic on top of their incredible talent and I think Claire is someone who absolutely fits into that mould she is an astonishingly gifted actress, hilariously funny, just a woman with funny bones, um, but also someone who isn't afraid to get out there and work for it and hustle and start generating her own work. And we talk about her own writing career kind of in parallel with her acting career as well. And this is a really interesting one. I had such a great time with Claire. She's an absolute star. She's someone I know from right the way back. I met her just before she graduated from the Gaiety. And it is lovely to see how her career has grown from strength to strength over the years, including big international successes with TV stuff and everything. So let's get straight into it. Here she is, the brilliant Claire Monley. The wonderful Claire Monley. How the hell are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. Um, Okie doke. If it hasn't worked for us, everyone has worked for us every time, so let's do the same again. Take me back to the very beginning. When did you first have an inkling that maybe theatre was for you and how did it come about? Well, um, I was a bit of an activities kid. Right. So I was the kid that had like an after school activity every day of the week and weekends, swimming at like 8am on a Sunday morning, summers back to back, like summer camps, the whole lot. It was to, like just to keep me off the streets, I suppose, um, was my mum's kind of uh, idea. So um, we were a big table tennis family. Okay. I didn't know my that brother was a thing, and sister cool. are like, t- like table tennis champions. Like my sister went to the junior olympics in moscow to represent ireland in, in the olympics so seriously like, yeah yeah like we were hardcore and my sister was always really annoyed that it wasn't like a more lucrative sport because <laughs> like she's always every man that like you couldn't make money off table tennis so she was really annoyed with that but anyway so they were very very good and i was kind of all right so we used to be playing table tennis at weekends and all that kind of crack until i i think i was about i was about eight when i started doing drama okay so my mom sent me to this drama school down in Churchtown called the Irish Children's Theatre Group uh, and a rake of us came out there me, John Cronin David Kelleher Claire Dunn all went through this drama school wow. in this chalet in this amazing woman's backyard in this woman made Widger um, so I started doing drama and I just I just loved it like I just found that because I wasn't sporty I wasn't really that good at anything in particular um, until I found this thing like being on stage uh, and I just loved it. Um, and slowly but surely, everything else fell by the wayside. All the other activities got dropped. Um, we'd be putting on plays down there and you'd be rehearsing all, all weekend, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. 
Uh, it was hardcore, like it was really, and she was an amazing teacher. She really like drilled in the discipline of like, like there was no talking backstage and there was no talking back to your director. And, Even as like eight year old kids? Oh man, like kids would, kids left that place crying. Like kids who weren't <laughs> up to it, left that place in bits. Like she just, she just didn't take any crap off anybody. Um, so she ran it like a proper little work in theatre. Um, but I loved that though, but I loved how strict it was. I loved like all the rules and I, 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 I like being good at stuff. Like I'm right, I like being right. Okay. So when you, when you find something that you're like, oh, I'm not just okay at this, I'm actually kind of good at this. Uh, and I remember like the moment that I, that I was like, I have to, I have to do this forever. It was a, a summer camp, so she ran summer camps all, all summer as well. Um, and they were, we were doing Annie at the end of the week, right? And I was up against a little young one with red hair for Annie. And I was like, this isn't happening. I'm about nine, like, I'm okay. about nine. But I was like, this isn't going to happen. Like, she's got red hair. Like, she's got red hair. She's going to get it. And she didn't. I got it. I got to play Annie. And I was like, that's it. That's it. I'm doing this forever. If ever I needed proof. Yeah. Like, I, I beat the little ginger kid to play Annie. Like, that's amazing. So, uh, so anyone asked me then what I was going to do when I grew up, it was like, I'm going to be an actor. I mean, I'm kind of roller eyes or whatever. But um, uh, so I, I continued with that drama school all the way through school, secondary school. Um. In about fifth year, I think I joined the Gay the Youth Theatre. Yeah. Um, which again was like hardcore, all encompassing, like all your weekends, every spare hour. Um, Nairi was in that with me, and Sean Finnegan from Foil Arms and Hog, Uncle Kenny who works in tech now, and loads of us, James O'Driscoll, who are again still working now. Yeah. Um, and I really, uh, really wanted to go on and do the full time course in the Gay. And my folks were like, "Ha, get a degree." Um. Okay. So I did. I went and got a degree, and I'm really glad that I did. Um, I wouldn't have been able. I was 17 leaving school. I wouldn't have been able for the gaiety then. It's a funny thing because I remember. There's a lot of people have this story. The Brian Burroughs of the world have a story of going in and applying for drama school and being told you're too young to go away, live a bit, and then come yeah. back. Now I remember me at 18. If someone had said that to me, I would have killed them with my bare hands because I was ready and I was a grown up and I was. And yeah. it's only now looking back on it. I kind of do wish that something had happened that I didn't go and train until I was 25 because you would have yeah. that much extra to bring to it. So how did you take that news at the time? Well, I was like, I was 16 feeling like my CAO. Yeah, okay. So I was still very much like, my mass had had to get a degree. So, so I have to get a degree. And like, you didn't mess with my ma, like, so <laughs> I was like, I have to go and get a degree. So um, what did you go and study? So I went and studied sociology and modern Irish in Trinity. Amazing. Um, didn't really know what sociology was if I'm really honest um, just wanted to be in town <laughs> like the basis for me picking Trinity over UCD was that I wanted to be in town okay. all the time um, like got an awful shock when I went into the Irish lectures and they were through Irish oh, this is okay. how clear was I was going to Okay. went into an economics lecture because I had to do economics in first year and I was like this what is this like what is this and then you're also in lectures with like in sociology, you're mixing with best. So you're in lectures with 200 people. And yeah. I was like, no one is going to know if I'm not in this room. Like, I could just... And I did. Just, okay. you know, went to the path. Um, but I'm really glad. I loved Trinity. I loved college. I was involved in players and uh, the Cunra. And I just had the absolute crack. And I grew up a bit. I, yeah. I just... Like, I didn't, I didn't study hard. 
like I I scraped my degree. I got a degree. Yeah. You know, I got an honours degree. Hey, for all the good it did me. But actually, as it happens, the Irish has come in really handy. Like I didn't, there wasn't any foresight in that at all. Like mm. picking Irish, it was just, I loved Irish and I wanted to study something that I loved from school, I suppose. Um, but it's come in really handy. Like I've worked at TG Cahar and like there's a lot of work now Oscar like it's it's really it's really handy now I'm I'm rusty as you know compared to what I was then but it's it's just really handy to well, have sure. that extra. I think, and it's the one thing I always say is for every part that you go for in a standard TV thing or a standard play there's 20 other girls just yeah, like you least, who yeah. could be in the mix for it you go for one of the Irish ones and maybe there's six the so smaller, instantly yeah. your chances of landing the gig totally yeah you know and it's been very good to me through my career as well yeah. and I also like, I really enjoy working through Irish too so do I and if it wasn't for the work that I've done through Irish I, it would be gone entirely yeah. do you know what I mean it, like it would just be gone it would rain so I've managed to keep it up a bit on account of that like getting the work and, and wanting to keep it up because there is work there to be had yeah it's funny how those skills like my mom, when I was going to secondary school as a 13-year-old kid, said, you have to do woodwork. I said, I don't really want to do woodwork. I'd rather do something else. Said, you have to do woodwork. I said, why? She said, because someday you're going to have your own theatre company and you're going to be building your own sets and you better have that fucking woodwork. That is so brilliant. And as it turns out, I mean, like literally every... every I thought it was like, because you're going to fail school and you're going to have to get <laughs> trading or you're going to have to just... No, no, exclusively just for building sets. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's foresight. Absolutely. Um, so talk to me then... So you had the crack in college. You go mm-hmm. through the player system, and that all works in. Did you learn what sociology was by the end of getting? I had a fair idea. I did a thesis. Like, <laughs> has it come in handy since? Um, not a bit. Okay. No, can't remember a jot of it. Okay. Um, but what it did do is I just grew up a bit, and yeah. I got to have the crack. Like, um, when I ended, when I, when I finally went. Like when I finally bit, the, I mean, during college, I think in like fourth year, I had this like mid, like re- really early life crisis of like, you can't be an actor. That's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous notion. You're going to have to be a nurse or a lawyer. Um, that's crazy. And I stopped going to players. Like I cut it off. Really? Yeah. I just had this like, maybe it was because I'd come to the end of the degree and I knew like, you know, the real world was ahead of me. And I was like, that's a ridiculous notion. You have to just get a real job. I was like, who, like who, who's an actor? Like who does that for a living? Like. You know, it just seemed really very out of my grasp, I suppose. Okay, so uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a crisis in your a crisis of faith in your own talent or skill. No, it was just that no, the, it was just life. It was like, yeah, okay. do you want to do you want to own a house? Do you yeah. want to be able to afford to have a child at some point in your life? No, you can't be an actor. That's ridiculous. Okay, and I just I think it, it did. It felt so out of my reach at that point. I just didn't know where how we'd begin, and like also. Like at that point, I was like, maybe I'll go into Trinity and I'll do the three years. But I just, I was coming to the end of four years and I was sick of college. Yeah. Like I was over it. Like I wanted a job. I wanted to earn money. I wanted to go traveling. Yeah. So when I came out, I was like, I want to go around the world. Um, I want, like, I want to go around the world. And I'll, if I, I'll come back and I'll think about the acting thing then. So I did. I went around the world for six months. Um went to Asia and Africa and America and just had an absolute ball got it out of my system I think there was always a thing in me I was like I want to do this now while it's an option for me yeah okay I came back and I went and did the part-time course in the Gaiety and I told myself and this is mental looking back at the start of the part-time course I was like right you're going to have a tutor in this course they're going to see you over the course of a year at the end of the year you're going to go to him and say him or her and say do you think I should be an actor? And if he says, yeah, you're going to do it. And if he says, no, you're going to not. That Crazy. was my, that was ridiculous. That was, and like, obviously about half through the year, I was like, 
because you're in a part-time course and like I loved it Christian Markham was our tutor he was really like innovative and he re- really passionate and um, but there were people there for whom it was just a hobby yeah so I get frustrated at that of course that they weren't you know there 15 minutes early and you know on top of their lines and and that was what made me go oh no you are different to some of these people you do like this I do want to do this for as a living like mm. So that was when I auditioned for for the full time course. I was like, I have to, I have to. Just, if I don't do this now, I'll never do it. And so I'll regret did it. Did you finish out that part time course? Yeah, yeah. And so it was the it was a year a long year long course. And during that, myself and Jamie O'Neill, who was in the course with me, were like, we have to, we have to just audition for the full time course. There's nothing for it. Like, uh, and then straight in first time. Yeah. Um. Now Sutton made me wait a good two weeks. Of course he did. So I was like, I swear to God, I was hounding like. <laughs> was Richie at the time was the receptionist in the Gaiety and I called that school like three or four times yeah. like to the point where he knew where I was and I was like well any news um, and I remember sitting I was working in Barclays Bank at the time and I was sitting at my desk one morning and I got the email from Sutton saying that I was accepted and I remember responding like I I was absolutely ecstatic and I responded to him and I was like you won't regret it I'll be the hardest working actor you've ever seen uh, and that was the start of it. Fantastic. Talk me through your experience of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this stage, also, I guess a bit, why, having done all that kind of teenage stuff, that you felt that it was important to get training? Why, yeah, so why did you think it was important to get training? And then talk me, tell me about your experience of training. Yeah. Well, I suppose I knew I had something. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew I had, like, the grow for it. And I knew I was good, I suppose, to some degree. But I had absolutely no idea what to do with it. Okay. Like even, like I knew I had a base, kind of, I don't know, a knack for it or uh, whatever you want to say. But I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anything about the industry. I was totally green. And I was like, well, if I go and train, first of all, it was a confidence thing. I, 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 I spent two years of my life my money, my soul, <laughs> my personal space. Then at least at the end of it, I'll feel like I, not that I deserve, but that I can, I can walk out into the industry, my head held high going, here I am. Yeah, that you've earned your opportunity. I've earned like the space yeah. to, to be there, I suppose, because I didn't know how else to do it. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely loved training. Like I I was at the point where it was all or nothing. Like I was, I was given absolutely everything to that place, and I was so delighted for it. Like I, I done college, I done the full time job thing, I done the nine to five, I done the waiting for Friday. I didn't want that. Like I knew I didn't want it, and to go from working full time in a job that you just weren't in love with to spending like fifty hours a week doing what you absolutely love just felt like such a gift it's kind of deadly like isn't it? it's and like and even even ha- like leaving uh training the hardest thing for me was just not getting to do it every day like i missed it so much and i kind of took it for granted to some degree while i was there like especially in second year when you're just kind of raring to go yeah but to get to do it all day every day with this gang of people this gang of amazing people. And we had, a, we had an unbelievable year in the Gaiety. We all just got on so well. Uh, we were so supportive of each other. It was a safe place to be crap. Yeah. Um, it was a safe place to fail. And I know that's not always the way. I know years kind of, you know, 
it's hit and miss like we with the, but I was so lucky and I think that was a big part of of the confidence I left there with was the gang that I was in there with and because stepping out of drama school like that is can be scary because you are coming out yeah. of a really bad world and like you say you're green oh, you don't so know ready, the ins and outs I was so ready how important is having that support structure around you of a gang of mates where you can go did you get that phone call about that audition or it's who's invaluable. your email and all that so because um, I know particularly you and, and Quiv are very close mates yeah. but it seems like there was more of a gang around you too oh yeah and like uh, that's the thing like when I started out and the reason that, that I said that I went to train like I was totally alone in my in my need to do this thing like all my friends have normal jobs um, you know real jobs uh, so I was very I felt very alone in this um, in this desire like it felt like a weird thing to want to do do you know it felt like yeah. Um, estranged and I what even when my like my mum knew my mum and dad knew what I wanted to do but when I got the call to say I'd gotten into the gaily and I came home from work and I was like I got in and my mum was like well what are you so what are you going to do and I'm like <laughs> I'm going to fucking go like I'm that's not a question like but but I, I, there was still like there was still that hope that i just stay in Barclays and earn <laughs> loads of money and have a, you know just, you know your folks want you to be you know, secure and steady yeah. in your job and in your life. But, um, so I felt very alone. But when you come out of the gate, you're like, I know, like, I, and we were very naive in some ways. Like, we didn't look at each other as competition when we were in that place. Right, okay. I didn't look at Quiva and go, we're going to be up for all the same parts. Yeah. It just did not cross my mind. It wasn't that, like, I was in there playing, um, like, the lad's part in Terminus. Right. Do you know what I mean? I was in there playing, uh, like, Richard III. I, it just didn't, who I was, what I looked like, even even my gender, weirdly, yeah. just was irrelevant in there. Wow. So it was a really... So when you came out and you're like, oh man, like, we are all competing against each other. That's weird. Um, but to have, like you say, that support structure of like, there'll never be something going on that I won't know about mm. from somebody. Uh, and like, obviously, now I've built up, I've six years of mates who, and a gang and a crew, like, who I can look to. But, but then particularly, yeah, we were all like we were all told and like there's a weird thing as well when you're coming into like after the showcase you go into grad rehearsals and people are kind of really quietly slipping out the door trying not to draw attention and everyone's like where are they going where are they going what's they know that i don't know um but we but we all did like we got behind each other and we and like to this day like there'll never be a play i do that the gang don't go to yeah and like at this point you know, you're like, lads, you're breaking my heart. Stop being in everything because you're, you're bankrupting me. But um, yeah, that's invaluable. I mean, they were all at my wedding. Like, Quiva was my bridesmaid. They're, they're friends for life, yeah. genuinely. It is a, it's, it's that thing. It's, it, I think it's a bonding thing that it's like soldiers coming back you for a while. You can't go through that and yeah. not be connected for life, yeah. basically. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, like, you know, for me, I'm, what, 15 years out now? And still, my best mates in the world are the gang you go through. Because it's just, it's such a unique experience. And it's a formative experience. Yeah. You're not going to come out the other end of it, diff- like, the same as the way you started. No. So talk to me then about those first footsteps out into the big bad world. Did it happen fairly quickly for you? Was there a lot of waiting around for the phone to yeah, ring? Yeah, no, I was, I was stupid lucky coming out of drama school. Like, uh, um... I got a, I got a, I got a bit of a Bowie showcase. I played Mina and Sive in my showcase. Right. Like I had the face of a twelve-year-old at that point, and I played Mina. But at the same time, I got an, I got an unreal grad play part, which, as you know, again, it's just hit and miss. It's so yeah. there's a, 
Michelle Reed, unbelievable playwright, writing a play for 19 people who need equal stage time. Like, it's an unbelievable task to ask somebody to do. Um, but I, I got a, a really cracking part. Um, ironically, I, 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 like, I, we, we helped Michelle, or at least we helped her. We gave her, like, stories from our childhood and stuff. Um, and I'll have to admit that I, I just assumed I'd be coming out playing dubs. Like yeah. I thought I'd be coming out of drama school, like play to your strengths. I was like, I want to play, I, I want to play a dub. I want to play an inner city dub. I kind of roughed up my childhood a little bit in me stories to her. <laughs> so she might, you know, and I got cast as a girl from the flat and I was like, happy days. Um, Cause I just thought that'd be my casting. I assumed that'd be me. Um, I love that usually with actresses, like, I'll take five years off my age on my CV or I'll, I'll say I can do horse riding around. You just went, no, I had a really rough childhood. Yeah, I, 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 yeah I, like, I drank in fields. Not a lie, but I beat it up a little bit, you know. Um, so so got this great part and um, and the day after opening night got a call from Maureen Glynn and First Home Management to ask me to come and meet her. Um, so like... That's pretty spectacular. Gift. That's incredible. Like yeah. I nearly lost my life. Um Obviously, I'm still with them to this day. I think they're incredible. Um, and then started getting auditions, which, like, I remember me and Quiva talking about this, and we were like, we were like, if we get an agent, like, jackpot. Yeah. Not expecting it, but if it happens, jackpot. And then Quiva got with Lisa Richards, and I got my first call. And then we were like, all I want to be is in a room. Mightn't get a job for a year. Mm. We just want to be in rooms, um, meeting people, getting out there. And then I auditioned for a play with Living Dread called Ride On. Uh, and Quiva auditioned for a play called The Country Girls with Red Kettle. Um, and on the same day, sitting out in the sunshine of Dublin Castle Gardens, we both got offered our first job Fantastic. on the same day. That's deadly. Like, what are the chances? Yeah. Um, so we were just, just could not believe it was happening. Um, so yeah, so like graduated in whatever June and went into that job with Living Dread in September. Fantastic. So like that's yeah. that was beyond all my wildest expectations, really. It's awesome that it happened so quick. It, I want to talk to you a bit about stepping into a show like Alone It Stands because it's mm. one of those big, almost franchise shows that you know in the way that it was so successful for so long and so many yeah. incarnations like it's almost in the river Feels dance like a, mode. a rite of passage like, yeah as an um, what was it like to join a machine like that because from what I know I've, I'm one of the few actors in Dublin who've never done it <laughs> but what's it like to because I believe it's the best crack to do that show unbelievable crack um, so I came back um, I took in the reincarnation that I was in Eleanor Tiernan did the first run of it and um, played Mary in the first run and then I uh, wasn't coming back to do the second run, so I auditioned and very happily got off the part. Um, as a hap- we, we were meant to do like two weeks rehearsal, two weeks rehearsals, but I was still shooting Moonboy, so I was coming in and out and I did six days. Now I've since been, like I thought I was the business. Six days getting this play down, um, and I've since been told that like I think Pa Ryan did it in a day or something. Okay. So like I was taken quickly down off my pedestal. Good. Um, but yeah, but uh, so obviously the lads had done it. Uh, Stephen Jones, um, Vinny had done it, and Jamie had done it, and myself, Sam McGovern, and John Merriman were coming in new. Right. Um, so as well as having John Breen in the room, obviously who could do like who could direct it in sleep, we had the lads. Yeah. So uh, and it's like learning a dance. 
like it's I've, I've never done I've never done a show like it in that it's like stand here and that's where you say the line and that's exactly where your laugh is mm. and that's exactly how that joke goes so it's like but in a nice way like I knew what I was getting into I knew it was a really well oiled machine and you were just you were picking up where Eleanor left off yeah it's, it's an odd thing because I don't think we have a tradition of it here in the way that the new alphabet steps into Wicked on Broadway exactly, or whatever that, yeah. there, there is that system exists throughout the world of theatre. Yeah. We just don't seem to have it here as much. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I think Alona Sands is kind of maybe stolen in his pockets as well. It's yeah. kind of a, um, it's kind of singular in that way. Is that you, you literally are you're like you are a moving talking prop. Yeah, and not in a bad way. Like it's the way it works. Like Ambrina knows exact like like a science. Yeah, exactly where the beat of every laugh is. If you if you like push too hard on something early in a scene, you might get a little titter there, a little titter there, a little titter there, but you won't get your big laugh. He's yeah. like, push through that, push through that. It's it's like in terms of comedy um, or writing or devising comedy, it's a masterclass. So, and then like putting it in front of an audience and seeing like, because you've been in the rehearsal and going, really? Like, is it that prescriptive? Put it in front of an audience and you're like, that's why. Yeah. And if you ever, if you ever think like get a bit of a notion to change something, <laughs> like you'll be quickly put back in your box because yeah. it won't work. Yeah, it's when, it's when you see people struggle against Shakespeare, going, "Oh, I know better than Shakespeare. Here. I'm going, I'm going to run off the rhythm here." You don't. Just don't. Just trust it. Yeah. If, if the system works, and of course, linking the greatness of John Breen and Shakespeare together is a wonderful <laughs> sentence for anyone. Somewhere in the world, John is, is delighted smiling. with himself, exactly. but he's not sure why. But you, know, but you know what I mean? Like, it's one of those ones, look, if it's tried and, te- tried and tested and if it works, have the good sense and kind of the humility to go exactly. trust that the system works and roll with it. Yeah. And totally. of course then, within it, in the way that great opera singers interpret an aria their own way, it's still in the same time signature. It's like it's still the same notes. You just yes. you put your spin on it within that structure. And you'll always bring, like that's you'll always bring you to to a yeah. show like you can't not yeah like anything that you perform in that you write you can't leave yourself at the door you bring like that's that is your unique selling point is you so you have mentioned a lot of stands being a bit like a comedy masterclass for you you seem particularly adept at comedy um <laughs> particularly comedy on screen is it somewhere you feel quite comfortable do you prefer doing funny stuff and therefore this is my segue into please talk to me about Moonboy. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um do you know it's gas like much like i thought i'd be always playing a dub and i literally have never played a dub except when i wrote one for myself uh, i also always thought that i'd be just young and crying on stage because right, okay. I can cry on cue like okay. I'm I am a crier now it's only because I'm a crier in real life like I'm a total whinge bag so it just comes really naturally to me so I didn't at all in fact early days in the gaiety when we we're doing our manifesto class with John Delaney um which is the reason why so many gaiety grads are banging out plays left of right course. and center um I think it was about maybe three or four months into first year and we all had to give each other a task like something that we hadn't seen each other do and mine was to be funny everyone was like you're too dour like gives a laugh there so I never ever thought that that comedy was my thing like in drama school I was like no I'm a I'm a serious straight up cry actor Um, and then I came out and yeah like it just I, I kept getting these comedic roles and like brilliant roles like Moonboy um, which was an unbelievable like baptism of fire obviously the gaiety like a lot of drama skills is like 
pretty strongly geared towards theatre. Yeah. Uh, we did a week of a film which with Vico Nietzsche, who was, which was amazing, but like it was a drop in the water, you know. Yeah, about. of course. So I remember before I before I went on set, I sat down with Aaron and made made him go through um, the credits of a film with me to tell you what everybody did. Like what 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 is a gaffer like? What why are there three assistant directors? Like you know what I mean? I just yeah. didn't I did not have a clue, um. And so I remember being in rehearsals, um, with the kids and stuff. We did a week of rehearsals before series one, um, and the kids would be asking these really basic questions, and I'd be like, oh, they're so funny, but listening really intently, because okay. I didn't flip and know either. Do you right. know what I mean? Um, or like, what's a sausage? Like, what's a mark? Like, I didn't have. A clue, and um, so but, but the beauty of of Moonboy was that like I was I was lead cast, so I was there all the time. Mm. So I got to learn instead of being. It's, I think I'd say it's hard for your first screen job to be as a day player because you're just in and out, yeah. you know. And um, whereas I was there all the time, I got to know all the crew. I got to ask all the stupid questions. Like I got to be like, like what what's a fifty? I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Don't tell me you're on a fifty lens. I don't know what that is. <laughs> give me fingers, give me square fingers around my face. I like, tell yeah. me where it is. But I got to, I got to be so comfortable in the in the place that I could do that. And also, I was getting to watch the mastery of Deirdre O'Kane and Peter Macdonald and Chris O'Dowd in work every day. Like it was, and the and the mastery of those children. Yeah, like those kids didn't know their arse and their elbow going on that set, and they just were like ducks to water. Yeah, it was like they'd never not been doing it. It's, I mean, was it? You talk about sharing a set like that with someone as spectacular as Deirdre O'Kane or whatever, but and also at the time, the whole machine around Chris was quite a big thing. I mean, totally. Chris, Chris is the full Hollywood deal. Like, yeah. let's go on Stephen Colbert and do late night talk show stuff. So he's the real deal. What is it strange being around that kind of thing? Was Chris awesome to be around? How involved was he in all this stuff? Yeah, I, like I remember going into my recall, like, and like. Like at the time, getting a recall was just such a gift. I was like, and in the recall was Amy Rowan, casting director, Chris O'Dowd, and Declan Lowney, yeah. who directed Father Ted. Do you know what I mean? So that in itself, like, I got to go in and I was wearing my lucky owl jumper, and we had a bit of owl banter. Like, I just came out of that being like, that's ridiculous. That's mad. And I remember meeting Quiva afterwards and being like, if nothing else, I can tell my grandkids I was in a rehearsal or I was in an audition room with Chris O'Dowd and Declan Lowney. Um, so then getting the part was insanity um but he's just such a pro like chris is a total pro and like that was his baby like moonboy was his baby he was there every day all day every day he'd be flying out at weekends to go to new york and film an episode of girls and he'd be back on set at 7 a.m on monday morning Do you know what i mean he's just an absolute workhorse yeah um so no there was none of that it was just all about the work yeah. like like any great actor or collaborator you'll be in a room with when it gets when it comes to the work it's just about the work so that like Hollywood machine isn't just even a thing it's funny how that happens the re- like the really good ones it's just about the work totally. and the ones who aren't that good do an awful lot of talk about the Hollywood machine exactly like when we were filming series one um, Bridesmaids was nominated for an Oscar like we were sitting on the lunch bus like looking at waiting for the Oscar shortlist and actually Peter's short film was shortlisted that year as well Man. so we were on the bus in like in our keep warms eating our chips or whatever and like looking up the Oscars list that's deadly like 
And I knew even like, even though it was my first big gig, I was so, so, I was like, soak this up. It mm. may never happen again. Yeah. Like this is, I didn't get that job and go, all right, this is what being an actor is. I knew that was yeah. not like the exception and not the rule. Um, except it wasn't that much of an exception because you've now got another big shiny yeah. TV company <laughs> show because that's how good you are, Claire Monley. Yeah, but like I, I remember the last few days on Series 3 Moonboy and I was like, now just take this all in because there's a good chance that you'll never be, a part, like it'll never be such a big part hmm. of such a special show again. And now I am. Like I am, it's incredible. So tell me about the crack. This is Nowhere Fast? Yes. Tell me all about it. Um, Nowhere Fast is... Um, a new uh, RT and deadpan sitcom written by the wonderful Alison Spittle and the equally wonderful Simon Mulholland. Um, I auditioned for it before Christmas um, and then, of course, was getting married on New Year's Eve and heading off to New York um, to piggyback on a Druid job. Um, so, auditioned, and it's so funny, like, um, Simon... Uh, Gibney, the director, was in the room for the first audition, which, as you know, isn't isn't all that usual, yeah. you know? Like, generally, you might be in the room with the casting director and, and throw yourself on tape and then maybe meet a director in a yeah. But he was there and um, also, unusually enough for a screen job, wanted to have the chats. Okay. Like, he wanted to have the chats. So I was really, I was kind of taken uh, aback by that. I mean, I, I'd work my arse off on the audition when I was ready to go. Um, but he just wanted to have the And, like, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. He was auditioning... The two, the two leads to play opposite Alison yeah. who are going to be on set all day every day like he wanted to know you weren't a knob um, it's the important qualification really for most jobs it's very important isn't it? but I was so taken aback he asked me what kind of comedy I like and I I just rambled so much like I talked so much rubbish um, that by the time it got to actually doing the audition I was like that man like personally dislikes you now <laughs> Like he thinks you're e- though. Even if you're great like, for this even part. Even if you are just... <laughs> epic now, you've just literally talked shit your way out of a job. Um, so I came out and as I always do, I come out of an audition and I go to the nearest bin and throw the sides in. Do you? Yeah, because I when I started out, Engo, I used to keep them just in case. Like a dope and that's just asking for trouble. So I go to the nearest bin. <laughs> but I threw these like particularly viciously into the bin because I was like, that's, you made a boss of that. Um, and typically enough, then they wanted to see me for a recall. So you went back to the bin. No. <laughs> back to the bin. I can't afford to print them out again. Um, so I went in for the recall. Alison was there. I'd, I'd known Alison because I did a, she did a Sky comedy short with Baby yeah. Cow that I did with her for a day or, um, so I knew Alison a little bit from that. Um, went in, saw, um, oh yeah, they, they were going to do the recalls in January, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to be in New York. So they did them, or so I went in before Christmas again, did the recall. Um, Simon was like on Skype, Aidish, the producer, was there in the room. Um, and I was temping at the time, so I ran down from Leeson Street and went in and like read opposite two different people. And then I was like, I actually have to go, I'm on lunch. I have to go back to that. What kind of an office was I in? I think they were like quantity surveyor or something. Amazing. I was like, I have to run back. I actually have to, I have to be in work. And I think, like, there's something about that. Like, Maureen McGlynn will always say, like, busy actors are, are good actors. And not necessarily busy acting actors. Yeah. Just busy in general actors are the actors who get jobs. So I was like, I have to run. Sorry. Um, and then I had to wait a torturous 
maybe probably was only about three weeks or so before I got the call um, but I got the call in New York the day before I was nominated for a theatre award <laughs> and I won the Hamilton lottery oh you did win the Hamilton so lottery so I was that's like right. that's three your plane's gonna crash like oh, yeah. that's it like that's that's three in a row man that's it that's all you're getting uh, was Hamilton Derby? unbelievable like I was in the front row they were spitting on my face like nice it was incredible <laughs> um, getting that phone call in New York before waking up to the news of an Irish Times nomination that's pretty fucking showbiz I literally like when I that all happened and then and I was obviously on cloud nine I did, I was just in my element and then I opened my email and I remember sitting in the little living room of the apartment we were in and Aaron was in the bathroom and I opened my email and I just roared laughing because like I'd won the fucking Hamilton lottery can I curse is that alright yeah, of course you can curse um, you can and I, you I started roaring laughing and Aaron was like what and I was like you're not gonna believe this shit I just won the Hamilton lottery Um so yeah, I did think my plane would crash on the way home. I thought like that's all you get for a lifetime. Well, actually. mercifully it didn't, and you're still mercifully here with it did us. not. Um, so, like in a relatively short period of time, like you've kind of achieved quite a bit in the business. Um, talk to me about what you think about the state of the business at the moment, about, about the landscape and how different it is. I mean, like you say, having graduated in 2011, that's right in the middle of all those cuts, the yeah. big cuts that came in on Irish theatre. Um, do you feel like the landscape has changed much in the intervening six or seven years? It's funny, like, a, a few actors um, have said to me, like, actors of your generation, Ingo, oh, have you. said, like, <laughs> that you. we came out at a, a shocking poor time to be yeah. coming out of drama school. Um, like, with all the cuts, like, all the companies who've been banging out work just weren't anymore. They just couldn't afford to. They weren't getting the funding anymore. So they're, like, and even more, like, Maureen McLean gave me the talk when I met her about how, you know, gave me the percentages of how few actors work and everything. And I was like, I know, I know. And she's like, and now particularly, like, it's bleak. Yeah. Um, but I think the upshot of that is that my, my generation of actors are making their own work and making incredible work. Like, since I've graduated, like, every year of the Gaiety that's come out, you know, the couple of years before me and, and the years since... Like there's at least one theatre company in every single that's come out of every yeah. single one of those years, and like a banging theatre company. Yeah. So that's that's the upshot of there being no work is that, and like that's the, the beauty of the manifesto course in the Gaiety, is like John Delaney was like, lads, you need this skill. Yeah, it's John John Delaney gets mentioned on this podcast almost each episode yeah, I'd because say so. of how influential he's been in, like you say, that like kind he of that generation, a generation of yeah, theatre makers. He really did. So, talk to me then about. Uh, you as writer and particularly in Charlie's Klepto and stuff mm. um, that so I'm presuming that you feel that this kind of the, the courage to tackle that came from the experience of Manifesto but then did you try it out first as collaboration? I did so what happened was um, I was sitting in the Dole office one day um, as you do as an unemployed actor and this kind of this sounds a bit wanky now um, I just I, th- I had this voice of this character in my head uh, and I started writing down little stories about her, basically, um, in her voice. And that's where the idea of it came from. And I had about 10 minutes of just stories, like mm-hmm. memories from her childhood, kind of. Um, and with off the back of that, I sent it into collaborations and asked for a 20-minute slot, uh, which I got. And then Julie had to write 10 more minutes. Um, so originally, she was sitting in the Dole office 
waiting to get our dole. Yeah. But I sent it to a friend and he was like, this, like the stakes need to be higher. Like the stakes need to be higher. What if she's, what if she's trying to get her baby back? And that's where the idea for, for Charlie kind of came from. So I, I, I banged out 10 more minutes. Um, and then the lovely Seamus O'Rourke, the most prolific playwright in Ireland, um, asked me to like be his warm-up act for um, a new play he'd written up in the Cornmill and Carrigallon um, the week before collaboration. So I was like, look, it'll be a warm-up. It'll mean you'll have to know it. Um, so Aaron directed it and um, and I did it up in the Cornmill in Carrigallon, two nights up there and two nights in collaborations, just 20 minutes of it. Um, and then, like I let it, it just fell by the wayside because I was working and yeah. I, I got jobs and um, and then during Fringe twenty fifteen, the wonderful Ruth McGowan reminded me about it and she was like, "What are you doing with that?" I was like, "Oh, I, I don't know." She's like, "You need to you need to write more. Like you need to go into the cell in Fringe." And then, of course, even though it was like that was about three o'clock on a Saturday night. Um, Monday morning I had an email from Ashley O'Brien being like I hear you want to use the cell <laughs> <laughs> like they, I, people often talk about the fringe and how it supports kind of you know oh like they, like they booted yeah, me up the whole yeah no it's play. bullying it's full like, bullying it's full on bullying like so um, at that point I was um, doing Big Maggie and the Gaiety for a six week run and I had all my days free so I had no excuse I was like right well I'll do a week in the cell I can't say I have no time because I have to temper so I did a week in the cell and I wrote more um, and then I gave it to Lee Coffey to read, who was a playwright who I, I admire greatly, um, and an all-around sound guy. Um, and I met him for a cup of tea to talk about it, and he really gently, like so gently that I didn't even realise what he was saying until about two hours later. He was like, he was like, this is great, her voice is great, it's really clear. Um, you've no narrative, like there's no story. Like it's all, he talked about, stakes and and it makes so much sense to me now everything that I'd written was in the past so ah, it was her yes, telling yes, me yes. stories from the past so like he was like where are the stakes like and I just seen Slice the Thief that he wrote yeah. um, that Wesley did um, and I, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time because the story was happening now because mm. he was in danger now and I was like oh man you're totally right like there's no there's no narrative like I have all her backstory I have mm. everything that's happened to her before but what's happening to her right now? Um, and so then a little while later, the Axis put out a call for, it was called Tearing Above the Rest. They had a bursary, a few bursaries to give out to artists from all um, back, all kind of backgrounds of visual artists and whatever, basically. It was a really broad kind of a um, an application. So I was like, right, well, I'll, I'll last for a week. I'll last for a week out there to pay myself um, because like that's the, the the biggest obstacle in creating work for me is having to pay rent as well. Yeah. Like it just is. It's just a practical thing that has to get done. They get really annoyed if you don't. Okay. Um. So I applied for that bursary and I got a week for me and Aaron to go out and workshop in Access and and we we had decided that that week would be banging out a story like banging it. What happens? Yeah. So basically, that was a week of Aaron just hounding me with questions. Um. About why? Why did that happen? Why? Why did she say that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the week, we had a little reading for some friends, some locals, um, some theatre people. Uh, and we got some amazing feedback from everybody. Um, and then Niamh Nicohar sat us down and was like, well, I want to produce that. 
Great. And that was how it all kicked off. Um, and then bringing it to, to the stage, like kind of fully realised. Yeah. It, do you feel like, it, did it grow again before that? Or how was it How was it then to get it in front of the audience? Like you said, you know, with the Alone at Stands experience, you put it in front of the audience and it changes again. Yeah. What was it like seeing this up in front of a full audience like that? Um, well, kind of before I had um, time to change my mind, Neve and Mark had basically had dates in the diary for it. Um, and then Neve also managed to, in all her glory, managed to get six venues on board, sight unseen, with guarantees. Like, the play wasn't even finished. Because um, she's a superhero. Um, so then I was like, oh, Oh, and then I and then I and they and they they paid me. They commissioned me to finish writing it, and I spent that on my wedding. <laughs> so then I absolutely had to finish writing it. So when we were in New York and Aaron would go off to do Beauty Queen, um, I would go to Starbucks and and write my play. That sounds incredibly glamorous and romantic. I love it. It sounds glamorous. It was a lot of me on Facebook for an hour, um, like Instagramming pictures of my laptop in Starbucks. Okay. I'm not actually writing. But isn't that like 94% That's of the process 94% these days? That's 94% of the process. If you're, not in, if you're not writing on Instagram, you're not writing at all. Um, you have mentioned a certain Aaron Monaghan a couple of times. You have the misfortune of being married to him. God love um, you. What's it like working with him? I, I've said a, a million times, he is my favourite person to share a stage with. It's incredible working with him. Um, and I get asked that a lot because obviously, you know, you're married Um he was basically obliged to direct it for me. Um, <laughs> couldn't really say no. Um, no, it's, he's, it's inc- like I take full credit for the fact that he's going to be an incredible director. Mm. And he already is because um, I kind of bullied him into directing me. Uh, and we've worked together a few times now. He directed Hitting the Mark in The Fringe. He directed me and Jamie in Walking the Road for the Cabin Theatre Festival. And then Charlie. Um, like I often slag him for how steadily he works. Um, but when you get in a room with him, it's like, of course, of course he does. Cause mm. I've never met an actor or a director, anybody in the arts with less of an ego. Correct. Like when you get in, it's, it is 100% about the work. 100% about the work. Like he nearly killed me. <laughs> he nearly killed me dead. Uh, like Charlie as it stands um, runs at 68 minutes and it goes at a lick like she talks faster than me hmm. uh, she thinks faster than me it it goes like there, you don't there is no stop for breath and he at one point he had me doing it so fast that it was down to 57 minutes that's pacey like I, I actually like at the end of that run I did it in 57 minutes and I sat down and I cried yeah like I and I'd never done anything on my own before hmm. Uh, I didn't consider how long it would be. I didn't consider, weirdly, that they have nothing to look at but you for that whole 68 minutes. Like, you can't... There's something about being on stage with other people, which I know is ridiculous, but, like, when someone else is talking, I'm like, oh, no one's looking at me, I can breathe now. Or at least you have a moment where you, like... Like, nothing can cross your face except what she's thinking for that whole time because people are watching you so intently. Yeah. Um, and I and I absolutely could not have done it without him. Do you feel having done a solo show like that that you can now take on anything? It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Like it's and I and this isn't to undermine screen work because I love screen work. Um, I adore it. I I, I 
but like there's nothing to compare the level of of stress and anxiety that you feel before you walk out on stage to do your own 68 fucking minute play like there's nothing will ever compare to that so so when I get on a set now I'm like this is a piece of this not in a bad way like I love the work but if you fuck it up you can do it again this is very true you can just do it again and like that's the kind of I suppose that's the beauty of of screen work and and I love being on a set and the amount of people involved and like the fact that you're just this tiny because you can get all up in your own head when you're in a rehearsal room and it's you and the director. Like it, it feels like that that is the world, that is the be all and end all. When you're on a set, you are one tiny part of this massive machine. Yeah. Um, and what you need to do is just get it right because we're on a schedule and we need to move on. So it's, it's kind of humbling in a way when you're doing screen work like that because... Um, and I remember being really disconcerted on Moonboy um, that like nobody was telling me it was good oh wow okay which is so ridiculous in hindsight but basically like if the director isn't coming to talk to you it means you're, it's right yeah like if someone says scene complete it means they got what they needed it like then it, then you have to say goodbye to that then. Yeah, it's not the same. You're, you're waiting for the round of applause at the end of Basically, each take. Basically, <laughs> or you're waiting for someone to go, yeah, that works. Yeah, we've ne- we've found something mm-hmm. there. Or or that doesn't work, so let's spend a week rehearsing it differently. Yeah. But you don't have that luxury on set. It's like, get it right now, quickly. Talk to me then, as we finish up, about ambitions or plans for the future or what you would like to do or where you not again not where you'd hope to be in five years but you know what I mean yeah just like what as you look as you look ahead to the next little while is there more writing is there more screen work is there more theater stuff what would make you happy um well like oh like overall goal is just like to be making a steady wage from being an actor that was always my ambition it's not that I'm not ambitious beyond that but I think like that success for me is 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 making a living doing what I love and I feel very 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 lucky that to get to do that because like I said I, I did the nine to five thing I did the real job thing and it wasn't for me um but yeah more writing um I was lucky enough to be awarded a bursary to write play number two so that's in the works now um I, I got myself a little desk in a little office on Dame Street with a lot of other writers and uh, like that is such a gift to be able to, to be able to afford to to actually write full time like I'm still figuring it out there's still a lot of Facebook watching I'm not gonna lie um, and I've, I've managed to like read a lot of books and watch a lot of TV in the name of research so research <laughs> you know what I mean um, but I, I, I met Mags McAuliffe the other night and, sh- and I was telling her that because she's writing away as well herself and, and she was like don't beat yourself up about that like it is like you, you are creating something and so you do need like creative inspiration or whatever I was like thank you Max um, so that's in the works play number two is in the works I'm developing that alongside Axis Ballymun um, I'm, I, and Jamie O'Neill is working on it with me and we're going to be running some workshops with some teenagers out in, out in Ballymun to talk to them about uh, body image and social media Wow. and stuff like that that's kind of where my mind is at at the moment um, all going well there'll be an L series too and nowhere fast and hopefully um, we will be taking Charlie out again next year as well. Excellent. So exciting times ahead. Exciting times. Claire Molly, you are the absolute best. Thank you so much for that chat. It was an absolute honour to have you in. I really enjoyed that chat. Thank you so much. 
So there you have it, the brilliant Claire Monley. Such a great chat. Really enjoyed hanging out with her for the hour. She's uh, she's just an absolute diamond. Wonderful, wonderful actress. And uh, like I said, that that great work ethic, that hustle, I absolutely appreciate it. And I think, as I said before, that theme is going to continue through this series. People out there just making it happen. Uh, I really appreciate that in someone. And so that brings us to our weekly roundup of what is going on around the country. Rise Productions are, of course, on the road, not just with The Good Father, but we also have our Christy Hennessy show out on the road and in the next week or 10 days we will be coming to Axis and Ballymun we'll be at the Mermaid in Bray we're going to be in Tullamore we'll be at Angreenon in Letterkenny we're at Antoan Arts Centre in Dundalk uh, then the big one of course is the Borgosh Energy Theatre on Sunday December 10th we're hoping to have a sellout of 2200 people there which is going to feel pretty goddamn special if you think it'll be seven years since we started off in a 50-seat theatre like Bewley's uh, in Grafton Street to be playing up to nearly 2,500 people is not bad going for uh, for seven years. Uh, and then on the 14th, the Christie Show is also up in Roscommon Arts Centre. Uh, as we look around the rest of the country, at the Abbey Theatre, they have let the right one in and they called her Vivaldi from Theatre Love It. And if you listen to that today, Friday, that's where I'll be at the uh, opening of They Called Her Vivaldi tonight with my seven-year-old daughter. Um, the Gate has the red shoes uh, it's Rapunzel at the Gaiety because it's not just any panto, it's the Gaiety panto. Uh, at the Borgosh is Cabaret and at the Lear Academy they have A Winter's Tale where I will be going tomorrow night, Saturday if you want to come and stalk me. Um, and that's uh, the graduating class of the Lear in one of their, their second graduating play of this year. Another very, very talented bunch. Uh, as many of you know, I've been following the Lear very closely over the last number of years. It's a place I feel very passionate about. Uh, I see it as the natural inheritor of the old BTS course that I would have gone through with all the gang. And it's great to see the calibre of actors that they are turning out. And I'm always very happy to go and support them up there. Uh, at Theatre Upstairs, they have two of clubs by the great Jessica Lean, another young actress emerging on the scene who I'm very very excited by really like her style very very talented actress that's worth checking out at Theatre Upstairs at the Civic Theatre in Tala there's a little play called The Good Father by Rise Productions come and see us it's your last chance to catch us in Dublin for quite some time um, at the Viking in Clontarf they have As Time Goes By uh, Bang Bang is at Bewley's well worth checking out and at the Pavilion Theatre this is something special A Night Before Christmas featuring Owen Rowe Michelle Forbes Cathy Belton and Phelan Drew with Lisa Lamb and Cormac DeBarra on music. Now, if that's not a lineup to get you excited, I don't know what is. Um, brilliantly, I've worked with everybody in that lineup at different points over my career. Um, that's going to be a spectacular night. That's well worth checking out if you're over on the south side. And even if you're not on the south side, jump on the dark and head over. Holy God, that's well worth the trip. Um, Body Language by David Bulger continues at the RHA. And at Smock Alley, we have The Grim Tale of Cinderella featuring the great Danny Galligan and Ash O'Mara. Uh, and they also, at Smock Alley at the moment, have that double bill of Disco Pigs and Sucking Dublin and at Project Arts Centre it's the Rough Magic Seeds showcase of Mr Burns featuring the talents of a certain Kira Ivy who was on Cobra's Quest with us back at the Fringe and then as we go further afield at the Everyman in Cork they have Romeo and Juliet and that will be followed by Beauty and the Beast heading west out to Galway there is uh, Dirt Birds and Middletown at the Town Hall and very importantly there is a Christmas Carol at the Mick Lally Theatre uh, it's a Christmas Carol by adapted by and performed by the great Brian Burroughs and Aaron Monaghan two of the best lads in the business two of my best mates it's a gorgeous gorgeous show if you are out west at all make it your business to see that while it's down there um, at the Lime Tree Theatre in Limerick they have Joseph and the amazing Technicolor 
Dreamcoat. And up north in Belfast, they have What the Reindeer Saw. And they also have Beauty and the Beast. So that is us. That is episode four in the books. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Oh,